All right, great to see all of you here. Uh, special greetings to our West Campus, those of you gathered there and, and those gathered in our tradition service. We're really uh, thrilled that all of you are here. Today I want to talk about some, a subject that every one of us prefers to avoid. How's that for an opening statement? Uh, it's something we don't like to talk about or don't like to think about. And I'm not talking about the Denver Bronco football season, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm talking about suffering, Suffering, suffering is a, is a fact of life on this planet. And it's not just that we see it every day in the news, which we do. It's something that we experience. The suffering that comes from broken or strained relationships or difficult or destructive marriages. The suffering that comes from a, a physical or emotional or, or mental condition that is deteriorating and, 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 or debilitating. This is the suffering of watching your children struggle or hurt or rebel or make unwise choices that you can't fix. The suffering that comes from financial struggles or a job where you're not valued or respected. The suffering that comes from, from burying a friend or a parent or a spouse, every one of those things I just mentioned is something that close friends of mine are experiencing right now. I'm carrying the, I mean, just the weight of friends who are suffering in those very situations, even in the last 24 hours. I mean, Raylene and I are in a season in our lives where most couples are our age are experiencing greater freedom as their kids leave home and go to college or get a job or whatever. But for us, with our 17-year-old son with special needs, we're experiencing less freedom, you know, including a two-hour-long nightly ritual of bedtime routine that often frustrates us and exhausts us. I mean, we love our son with all of our hearts, but this was not, this was not what we envisioned for this season of our lives. I mean, the, the reality is suffering is an unwelcome part of all of our lives. So what do we do with this reality? Honestly, our world doesn't really help us much processing this stuff, right? The world provides us with all sorts of ways to escape the pain, to, to avoid facing reality, get drunk, get high, get laid, get wasted, whatever, anything to numb the pain, anything to numb that emptiness. But, but is there another option? <clears throat> is there a way for us to experience suffering head on, to face it, to walk through it, rather than desperately trying to ignore it. Well, actually there is, um, and, and we see this so powerfully in the Old Testament book known as Ruth, which we're in the midst of studying. So if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Ruth chapter one. As we saw two weeks ago, the book of Ruth begins by introducing us to a man named Elimelech, who because of a famine in the land, unwisely chose to remove his family from Bethlehem, which was in the promised land, to a place called Moab, which was a godless, spiritually dark place. And in that place of Moab, their lives begin to fall apart. So Soon after arriving there, Elimelech dies and leaves his wife Naomi a widow. Now, Naomi's two adult sons end up marrying Moabite women, but within a few years, her sons die as well. So can you imagine the level of suffering that this woman finds herself experiencing as she has buried her husband and both of her children? The despair, the overwhelming grief, the fear for the future, the financial anxiety. 
the anger, the confusion, the loneliness. You see, the Bible is a book that unashamedly addresses this reality of suffering. It doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't paint this Disneyland view of the world. No, it shows, the Bible shows real people experiencing real suffering. No easy answers, no, no quick fixes. So the suffering that Naomi is experiencing is off the charts emotionally and, and financially and socially. But, but as Naomi journeys through the suffering, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna see some, we're given some insight. So we're going to get some perspective to help us navigate our own experiences of suffering. So what happens in Ruth 1 is that after Naomi's sons die, she decides to return to her hometown of Bethlehem. And one of her daughters-in-law, a Moabite woman named Ruth, chooses to stay with Naomi. So let me read, starting in verse 19. So the two women... Naomi and Ruth went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is God's word. Now, the, the image that comes to my mind when reading this passage is the image of a mooring, a mooring. So for those of you who don't know what a mooring is, that's okay. Uh, let, me, let me explain it. A mooring is a permanent or solid structure that a ship or a boat gets tied to in order to make sure it doesn't drift during high winds and storms and all of that. Okay, that's a mooring. And in Naomi's story here, we see three moorings. We see three solid realities that we need to stay tethered to in the midst of the storms of life that we all experience, in the midst of our suffering. So the first mooring is what I would call the freedom to feel. The freedom to feel. As I mentioned earlier, our society doesn't really know what to do with suffering. We don't really know what to do with grief and sadness. Other than to try and escape from it or avoid it, stuff it, don't cry, don't show emotion, don't feel, just keep plowing ahead, right? Just keep smiling. You know, we, we may have learned this in our family of origin growing up where some really bad things were happening, but no one talked about it, right? And so we just kind of learn to stuff our emotions, stuff our sadness and pain. Or maybe we have learned this from other Christians who believe that suffering is a sign of weakness or it's a lack of faith. And so either way, what happens is, often with us, what happens is when suffering occurs, when we experience pain, the pain of grief or loss, our instinctive response is to move away from our grief. It's to move away from our pain. Someone recently gave me an excellent book on grief by Alan Wolfelt, who's a grief counselor in Fort Collins. <clears throat> this book is called Understanding Your Grief. 
And I know the Community Grief Center here in Greeley um, has copies of this book. They have other resources, great resources for, for those in grief. But in this book, Wolfelt describes how our society often encourages, encourages people to move away from their grief rather than towards it. So this is what he writes. He says, far too many people view grief as something to be overcome rather than to be experienced. So we tell people in grief, they just need to move on. It's been a year. Come on, you just need to get over it. Which in reality is such damaging advice because it encourages people to ignore their hearts, to run away from their grief rather than to experience it. But not Naomi. When she and Ruth arrive in the city, it creates this buzz, right? And all the women are whispering to each other, is this Naomi? Um, they remember her from 10 years earlier, but, per, but are, are perhaps shocked by her appearance now. I mean, suffering has taken its toll. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. The name Naomi means pleasant. She says, don't, don't call me that. Call me Mara, because God has made my life anything but pleasant. He's made my life miserable, bitter. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. See, here's what I love about Naomi in this passage. She is being totally honest about how she feels. She's not saying what she thinks godly people are supposed to say. Oh, God is good all the time. Oh, yeah, I've buried my husband and my sons, but I'm sure God's got better things in store for me. She's not doing that. She's not putting on this religious mask that hides her true emotions under the facade of right theology. No, no, no. She's just being real. She's just being real. My life is empty. My pain is beyond words. My heart, she says, is bitter and angry. She's not ignoring or stuffing her pain. She's not pretending nothing happened. She is feeling it. She's feeling it. But there's something more than that that I want us to notice. She is feeling it in the context of faith. See, notice she is not saying, the Lord has made my life bitter, therefore I don't believe in him anymore. God has abandoned me, so I'm abandoning him. You will not see me at the synagogue anymore because I've given up on God. That's not what she says. God is still in the picture. She's just mad at him. <laughs> and she's disappointed in him. And she's expressing that. And God is totally okay with this. He is totally okay with this. Notice, there is no lightning bolt from heaven obliterating Naomi for her blasphemy, right? There is no punishment from God headed her direction. Why? Because God is not offended. He's not offended. God doesn't want our pretend happiness. He doesn't want our faking it. He wants our hearts. He wants the real us, not the pretend us. One thing that is abundantly clear in the, in the pages of scripture is that God, our God gives us the freedom to feel. He wants us to stay connected to our hearts because the, the heart is where we experience him. This past summer, I, I uh, was reading a book called A Grace Disguise, which is a, this book written by a Christian man who, um, whose wife and mother and daughter were all killed in a car accident. All of them 
were killed in a, in a car accident. A horrible tragedy. And so in the midst of overwhelming grief, this man began to explore atheism. He was a strong Christian, but he began to explore atheism. I mean, why believe in a God who allows this kind of thing to happen, right? Um, so as, as he was reading several books and websites that were promoting atheism, um, he soon realized that atheism offers no context to validate feelings of sorrow. In other words, he realized that without God in the picture, everything is relative, including our grief. So this is what he says. He says, I discovered that sorrow itself needs the existence of God to validate it as a healthy and legitimate emotion. If there is no God, human emotion collapses into a terrible relativism and it makes no difference how we respond to loss. See, ironically, the trail to atheism led him right back to God, a God who gives value to our sadness. A God who actually gives value to our grief and our feelings and our despair. He gives us the freedom to feel these things. So if you are in the midst of suffering, let, let me just ask, are, are you giving your heart space and freedom to feel? Are you giving your heart the space and the freedom to feel, even if it means feeling angry at God for not coming through for you and expressing that anger to him? He is big enough to handle that. He's big enough to handle that. What he wants more than anything else is your heart, your authentic, real heart, the real you. Okay, the second mooring that we see in this passage to help us in the midst of our suffering is the gift of community. The gift of community. See, in the midst of Naomi's suffering, God has given her a precious gift to help her. And that gift, to help her through her suffering, and that gift is her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Now, it's interesting to note how earlier in the chapter, Naomi, you can read this for yourself, but Naomi does everything she can to encourage Ruth to go back to Moab, knowing that this is going to be the best thing for Ruth. Her odds of finding a husband in Bethlehem are, are, gonna, are harder than they are in Moab, which is her home country, right? Rather than moving in with Naomi in Bethlehem, Naomi knows this. She can't, she can't really offer her anything in the way of you know, financial support or whatever. So Naomi, out of concern for Ruth, tries to discourage Ruth from coming along and joining her. But Ruth refuses to go back. She clings to Naomi and refuses to leave. Pastor Stetson talked about this last week, but I want us to look at this real quickly at this verse where Ruth says, where you go, I will go. And where you you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. See, what Ruth is demonstrating here in, this, in the passage we just read is actually the main theme of this entire book. And the main theme of this entire book is this Hebrew word, hesed. H-E-S-E-D. Hesed, which is usually translated kindness 
or love, but it's so much more than that. Hesed is, is a tenacious, committed, loyal, stubborn love. A love that keeps on loving even when it doesn't make sense. So Ruth is committing herself to her mother-in-law to be a part of her life, to be with her in this journey of suffering and difficulty. There are no guarantees for anything once they make this move to Bethlehem. But that's okay for Ruth, right? She is committing herself to being there for Naomi, period. Now, most likely... Part of the reason for that commitment is that Ruth is grieving as well. Ruth is grieving as well. She's lost a husband. She needs community. And she feels this connection to Naomi. So she commits herself to continue this relationship and to move with Naomi to this foreign land. But, see, Ruth realizes the need. But I'm not sure that Naomi, initially at least, realizes her need for community as much as Ruth does. In fact, look at verse 18. We read in verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she's not given up. She, she finally, Naomi finally stopped urging her to go back to Moab. See, there, there is no indication here that Naomi is secretly wanting Ruth to stay with her, which could be a sign that she's just wanting what's best for Ruth. But I think it's more than that. I think Naomi's response here is a reflection of, it's, it's really a reflection of all of our tendency in suffering to withdraw from community. We, we, we tend to withdraw from community. We tend to want to isolate emotionally, to not be perceived as being needy, to not share with people what's really going on. You know, we, we don't want to bother them. We don't want to look weak. Or maybe we feel that we believe that lie that no one really cares and that our feelings don't really matter, so we're not going to share it with anyone. All that stuff we looked at in the shame series a few weeks ago. This is especially true, and some of you are living this. This is especially true when our suffering continues for any length of time. Maybe we've shared with people three months ago, but we're still here. We're still suffering. And it, we just don't want to bring it up again because we feel like people are probably tired of hearing about our struggle. And so we decide inwardly, we just decide the best answer to the question, how are you doing, is I'm fine. See, I want us to be a church where no one feels like there's a statute of limitations on suffering. You know, I, I want us to be a church where you... I, you know, I, I want to be where you can share about a struggle at any point of time, right? That there isn't a certain length of time where you need to stop sharing about a struggle. I want us to be a church where we can share openly about our struggles, even when they are persisting for months and years. I want us to be the kind of family that God describes in the book of Romans. Check out this passage from Romans 12. He says this, be devoted to one another in love. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Now look again at that last line. Mourn with those who mourn. You know what the key word is in that phrase? You know what the key, I think the key word in that phrase is? It's one that we, we skip over. It's the word with. Mourn with those who mourn. One of the most powerful and important ministries we can have to someone who is grieving is the ministry of presence. Being with 
them, not trying to offer theological answers. Oh, they're in a better place, or God must have had a reason to take them. You know, when you're with a grieving person and you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Give them a hug. Weep with them. Tell them that you love them and that you are here for them. Don't try to offer theological pithy sayings about heaven or death or whatever. Zip it, okay? Zip it. You know, I'm appalled at the things that are said to grieving people at funerals. The most comforting thing you can offer is your presence. Your presence. See, the reality is we can be that gift to those around us who are suffering. We all can offer this to those around us who are suffering. Where, where we are not offering pithy answers and theological treatises on suffering and death and all that, we're offering ourselves. We're offering ourselves. See, we, we don't want anyone to be alone in, in their suffering. We, as a church, we don't want anyone to be alone in their suffering. We, we, have, a, we have a ministry here called Paths to Hope where you can meet one-on-one. -on -one. We will pair you up with a, just a mentor, mentor slash friend. We'll pair you up with a trained person, and they're there just to walk with you in the journey. It's not a Bible study. It's not trying to answer. It's just they're going to walk with you in the journey. So you can call the church, just ask about Paths to Hope. Now, let me also say, if you are not a part of a small group at Christ Community, I urge you to get in one now. Don't wait until the, some crisis happens. Build this mooring into your life now so that when a crisis happens, you will already be in a circle of relationships around you. The hardest time to be trying to establish community, relational community, is when you're in the midst of suffering. So do it now. Do it now. Build this into your life now so that you will have a spiritual community around you when the storms of life hit. You, you will not regret. You will not regret it. I know sometimes, oh, I don't want to go to a small group. I don't have time. All, the, all those things. I get it. We're all, we all feel that way, Right? But you will not regret it, being intentional about being a part of a smaller, a small group, a spiritual community, so that when, and the crisis will hit, when they hit, you're already in relationship with other people. Well, the third mooring that we see then in this story is the freedom to feel and then this whole gift of community. The third mooring we see here is the character of God. The character of God. Now, you may be wondering, where do we see God's character in this story? <laughs> well, it's actually shown in the words of Naomi. So in the midst of her honestly voicing her feelings, she uses two different names of God. So each of which remind us of a particular aspect of God's character that's especially important for us in the midst of our suffering. So the first of these is revealed in the word Lord, which Naomi uses in verse 21. The Lord has brought me back empty. Now the word Lord, there you can see on, on the screen or in your own Bible, it's probably in all caps. 
And that's intentional. So when you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, it tells you that there is a particular word being used there for God. There are many words, a number of words used for God, Elohim and others. But Yahweh, is a, it's a specific word. When, when it's L-O-R-D, all in caps, it's telling us it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's made up of four consonants, Y-H-W-H, and, and it refers to the, the personal name of God. The letters specifically mean, I am. Okay, so what does that I am refer to? Well, we see an answer to this earlier in the Old Testament when God revealed himself to Moses. This is a big deal. God is revealing himself to Moses. So in Exodus 33, Moses asked God, show me your glory. He just wants to get to know this God. He wants to understand him. He wants to see his glory. He wants to see God for who he truly is. So God reveals himself. In that moment, he reveals himself as Yahweh. And then he clarifies what this means. So check this out. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, that's hesed, and faithfulness. Did you notice the first word God uses to describe himself? Compassionate, compassionate. Our Yahweh, this Glorious God is a God of compassion. That's how when he's introducing himself to Moses, the first thing he mentions, when I use Yahweh, this is what I want you to know about Yahweh. My heart is a compassionate heart. Our God is a compassionate God. He feels our pain. He weeps with us. See, even in the midst of Naomi's feelings of disappointment with God, she still refers to him as Yahweh. She still refers to him as Yahweh, as this God of compassion. Now, now, this idea of God being compassionate was such a radical idea in that culture, and it actually it is in ours as well. And let, let me talk about this, because in Ruth's day, the nations around Israel, they worshipped lots of gods, lots of gods. And the way that this worked was, if you were experiencing suffering in some way in your life, a health crisis, or maybe your crops were failing or whatever, you needed to try and get your God to do something to help you. And the way you would do that would be like cutting yourself or sacrificing one of your children or having sex with a temple prostitute or whatever you could do to manipulate this indifferent, uncaring deity. You had to get him or her on your side. The whole concept of karma, reincarnation, they're all rooted in this, this, this idea of, of God doling out punishment and all of that. See, nowhere... Nowhere in these worldviews is there a compassionate God. Nowhere. A God who feels what you feel. A God who suffers with you. But that's exactly what we see in this story. And it's exactly what we see when God comes to earth later in the person of Jesus. And we see Jesus having compassion on those who suffer. He's weeping when Mary is grieving at her brother's tomb, right? We do not have a God who was uncaring and distant or who has to be manipulated in order to lift a finger on our behalf. 
No, no, no. We have a God who weeps with us. More than that, we have a God who suffers for us. The, the, the cross of Christ is God's response to suffering. It reveals a God. The cross reveals a God who was willing to enter our pain in order to experience death, to suffer rejection and shame and guilt and judgment, all for a crime that he didn't commit. Why did he do that? Has said. That's why this loyal, stubborn, relentless, devoted love for us. So in our suffering, God wants us to remember his suffering and to lean on his compassionate heart. He feels what you and I feel. He weeps and grieves with us. He is Yahweh. He's Yahweh. But that's not all. There's another word that Naomi uses for God. She says in verse 21, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. This is a different word. This word almighty in the Hebrew, it's, it's the word Shaddai, El Shaddai, for you Amy Grant fans. Okay, uh, brings back lots of memories, right? Uh, El Shaddai. Um, but Naomi is referring to God as the almighty, as the sovereign Lord, the supreme ruler, the creator, the power, the power in the entire universe. See, Naomi fully acknowledges the tension that all of us feel in our suffering. Every one of us feels exactly what she's feeling here. If God is sovereign, if he really is almighty, he must have caused us. He must have caused my husband to die and my sons to die. He brought this misfortune in my life. See, that's, that's what this feels like, right? If he is in control, then why do these bad things happen? Every one of us who has suffered or is suffering wrestles with these questions. Every one of us. Why? Why me? Why my spouse? Why my children? Why? Now, we can fast forward in this book, right? We can fast forward and see how God is going to orchestrate something really cool at the end of the story. But that's not where Naomi is in chapter 1. That's not where Naomi is in the, at this point in the story. And it's not where most of us are either. We don't have that luxury. Oh, we just fast forward. Oh, I know all this is going to take, take care of it. It's going to all fit together and blow up. We, we can't do that. We don't have that luxury to fast forward. Now, yeah, we have the promises of God and the hope of heaven and all of that, which is an amazing hope, you know. But we, you know what? We still have to live in this broken world right now. And it causes, and it causes this very real, very personal angst, this tension inside of us. And this is the heart of the tension. Can I trust this God? If all this stuff happens, all this suffering, can I trust this God? Can I trust him when I don't see the purposes of my suffering? Can I trust him when my heart is breaking with sorrow? Naomi's answer, Naomi's decision was yes. And this isn't a flippant sort of thing. This isn't really about feelings or anything. It's just this decision she made. I'm going to still call him Yahweh, the compassionate, merciful God. And I'm going to still call him El Shaddai, God Almighty. 
Even when I don't see or feel much evidence of either one of those things, I'm still going to walk with him. I'm still going to trust him. I'm still going to walk with him. So earlier I mentioned our son Joshua, who, who has significant special needs. When Raylene was like eight months pregnant with Joshua, she went to this, um, this conference where there was this woman speaker who got, had this prophetic ability. So she would have, this woman had the ability to kind of pray over people and she would get words from God, words of knowledge over these people. Pretty powerful ministry, right? So Raylene went to this conference and during one of the prayer times, Raylene, who was obviously pregnant, she went up to receive prayer from this woman who was just going down the line and she was just speaking these words over these women. And so She's speaking word here and word here and a word over this woman. And when she came to Raylene, she just began weeping uncontrollably. That was her word for Raylene. Weeping. So when Raylene came home, she told me what had happened. You know, I just tucked that away in my brain. What, what do I do with that? And we both were like, I don't know what to do with that. But now it's often come to my mind as we're in year 17 of, of this journey with Josh. And I wonder, I wonder if, if that weeping was God's way of saying, I know this journey is going to be hard. And it's going to include sadness and weeping. But I want you to know that I am with you in this journey. I feel what you feel. I hear your cries. I am moored to you in this storm, and I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. See, I think that's what God wants to say to all of us in the midst of our suffering. And he wants to know this. Will you trust me as your compassionate, good Yahweh? Will you lean on me as your almighty God even when you don't understand? Even when you don't understand. Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, would you speak? Would you quiet our minds and our hearts and just speak to us now? taking your word and applying it to our hearts and our lives. So let me just ask, as you're quieting your heart, let's just ask, what mooring is God laying on your heart right now in the midst of your suffering? Maybe it's this freedom to feel. That's what he's laying on your heart. Just feel. Don't run from it. Just feel. Or maybe it is this need for community, this, this need for relationships, or perhaps it's you being that for someone else who's suffering. Or maybe it's the character of God trusting his compassionate heart, his sovereign purposes. So I, I want us just to take a few moments here and whatever mooring Jesus is laying on your heart, let's just lean into that. Just lean into that.
to share in the quiet of your heart. Just talk to Jesus about that. Lord, I thank you, we thank you for these moorings in the midst of the storm. And some of us, our boats are getting tossed all over the place. But thank you for these moorings that you give us. And I pray for each one of us to press into those things and to know that you are moored to us. You are holding us. No matter how high the waves are going to get, you're holding us. And you're a God we can trust. You are Yahweh. You are the almighty God. And so I just want to pray for that for each person here. Take us deeper in that, Lord. You know, there, there, is, there is a place where we see the Yahweh compassionate heart of God and the sovereign almighty power of God. We see those things meet. And that place is the cross. God's compassionate heart led him to the cross and his sovereign purposes used that injustice to bring about our salvation. Only God could pull off something like that, seriously. Only our God could pull off something like that. He is writing a story that is so much bigger than our sufferings. And so today we have the opportunity as we're responding and in a few moments in worship and prayer and we have an opportunity to engage in another response, which is the Lord's Supper. That this reminder of Jesus' death on the cross for us, the bread represents his body, his physical body broken for us. And the juice represents his blood that was shed for us, establishing a new covenant that's not based on our performance, it's based on his work. So in just a moment, as we enter into this time of worship and responding to the Lord, however that's going to be in prayer or giving or whatever, singing, we also want to encourage each one of us here to receive the Lord's Supper. And the way that happens, there, you, you can just go to a table around you. In this room, there are a couple at the back and there are some up front here. Go to a table and take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice and then you can partake right there or you can take that back to your, your seat. You don't have to be a member of Christ's community. If you have placed your trust in Christ, then we invite you to receive the Lord's Supper. And as you receive the Lord's Supper and as we're responding in worship and prayer, I, I, want, us, I want to encourage us to remember God as Yahweh and El Shaddai. Both of those describe who he is for us. So God, thank you 
thank you for the cross where we see, it's amazing, we see a God who is not distant and uncaring about the mess we're in and the sufferings we experience. You suffered for us. You suffer with us. And yet you do so for a purpose, a glorious purpose that you're orchestrating in your sovereignty. And so we thank you for the cross where we see Yahweh and God Almighty. We see these aspects of your character meet. And as we, as we receive the Lord's Supper and as we sing these songs of worship, we're just grateful that you are our mooring in, in the storms we experience. We're grateful. And we love you for that. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for being a God like no other who's willing to suffer with us and for us because of your love for us. So set us free right now to worship you in song, in the Lord's Supper, however you're calling us to worship you. So why don't, we, why don't we stand wherever you are, West Campus here. Let's just stand. If at some point you want to sit down, that's totally cool. And let's just, let's respond to this amazing God who is ours.